putting myself out there and very vulnerably saying, you know, I'm really offended by this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I think that this is part of a, a of um, you know, a racist um, narrative around, well, specifically Chinese people, but for the purposes of this mm-hmm. conversation, people who are racialized as Chinese mm-hmm. as perpetrators of a virus. And then mm-hmm. just to have that whole thing boiled down by this white guy who was just like, no, was so upsetting for me. I went, I, I, I when I spoke to my husband about it, my husband is white, but um, he's very, he's very understanding. And he was just like, oh, we need to get you some Asian friends. And I was like, yeah. Really? <laughs> I just felt very That's alone. Everybody um, needs I, Asian yeah. friends. Hi, this is the Ignoramus's Guide to Surviving Humanity. I'm Eliana Chan. That's my co-host. Wei Chan. And we have a very special guest today, my Anne Peterson. Did I say that correct? Hi. Yes, <laughs> welcome. We practiced in everything. Ten points to you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so Mayan is a co-founder of the Be Seen Network and also one of the co-hosts of the podcast, But Where Are You From? So in honor of that, we're going to ask you, but where are you from? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I am originally from London. Um, I grew up in Southeast London, but I lived most of my adult life in Scotland, in Edinburgh. And I have been living in Senegal, in West Africa for the last five years. Um, But I guess I would say I'm always a Londoner at heart. Oh, that's nice. That's wow. the answer that Gunnigal. I usually give people. <laughs> that is amazing. It did sound very rehearsed. It did sound yeah, very Yeah, I've said it many, yeah. many times. <laughs> and then usually I kind of like suss out the vibe, depending on whether they say, yeah, but like, where are you from? Oh, no. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, I was going to say I never get away with that sort of answer. It's always, <laughs> but where are you from? <laughs> like, you know, like, like your family. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah your family. <laughs> um yeah exactly and I just I have a problem with that because I'm just so used to just you know spew like spewing it just I'm Malaysian Chinese my mom's from the Philippines my dad's from Malaysia I was born in London you know it's It's like so long it's so long yeah and sometimes it's like when you're in auditions um and they ask you that they just want to know whether or not you could play the role that they Hmm. and I'm like doing such a long spiel that I know I've lost them. And I'm always like leaving the audition going, I should have just said I was Chinese. That's all they needed to hear. I kind of feel like when it happens in real life conversations, it's because people have got a preconceived box that they want to check. So, you know, they're waiting to hear, um, they're waiting to hear the Vietnamese part if I'm talking about my family heritage and they don't even really care about the the rest they just want to be able to say oh I went there on vacation um yeah. you know two years ago it was so beautiful or oh I love Vietnamese food do you know how to cook Vietnamese food yada yada mm-hmm. yada and it's like they've already got a kind of a, an agenda of what they want to talk about um it doesn't really matter what your you know very nuanced identity is they just like you said they just want to hear Chinese or Vietnamese but I totally like that. Like I did just have a conversation about Poland with someone because I wanted to hear about the country, you know? So, but I were mean, they actually from Poland? 
I mean, yes, they were. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's the difference. <laughs> I think, you know, let's say if I'm traveling abroad and people hear my accent and they're like, oh, are you from the UK? And I say, yes. And then they say, oh, that's so cool. I've always wanted to go there. That's a conversation I'm willing to have because I am from the UK. Mm. Um, I think having heritage from somewhere and being from somewhere are very, very different things and where you're from can shift so much. Like, I think London is a really good example um, of a city where you can be a Londoner without having necessarily been born and bred in London. I think it's one of those really fluid, welcoming uh, identities that anybody can have. Probably similarly with you know places like New York, San Francisco, Sydney. There's so many ways that you can have an identity without necessarily being born into it. Do you feel that? Like, I do not know because just having come back to London only like a few years ago. I I don't know even if I would call myself a Londoner. Not not immediately. I'd be like, I'm from here, but I would probably say all the other stuff. It's up to you though, I think, <laughs> ultimately. It is up, yeah, it is up to me. Yeah. And I like to be accurate. <laughs> it's um, a bit like your experiences versus like your heritage, you know, like you don't necessarily have like so many experiences in Vietnam like given like where you've been and things like that I would be really interested in understanding sort of well I also live in southeast London so yay, yay. Um, um yeah um like I would be interested in knowing what your experiences are in southeast London um Senegal definitely oh <laughs> you've gosh, got to talk definitely. about that that's incredible I've never met anyone that's done five years in Senegal, I have to say. So I've never um, been to Senegal either. Oh, it's, re it's a really amazing place. You should definitely visit if you have the chance. Um, it's one of my favorite places in the whole world, actually. Um, but I think for me, growing up in Southeast London, it's, it's a very diverse place, as you know. Um, as kids, I didn't have a lot of East or Southeast Asian friends, maybe um, a, a few small handful here and there, but I went to a school that was pretty diverse. Mm -hmm. So the majority of my friends were white, South Asian, black. Um, and sure. we didn't we didn't have a very strong Vietnamese community. We, my family wasn't kind of involved in community centers or anything like that. So I didn't have a really strong connection to my Vietnamese identity growing up. I was very much a Londoner first, then I was British. Um, and then I moved to Edinburgh and Scotland, Scotland is getting more diverse, but it's still very white. Um, mm. So I kind of felt like in terms of diversity, I was going backwards a little bit, but that was a very interesting experience. Um, overwhelmingly positive, but obviously there were a few hiccups here and there. And then I moved to Senegal, which is in West Africa. It's the furthest point of mainland Africa. And although Dakar itself, the capital, is very diverse, there are a lot of um, non-Senegalese West Africans. There are also a lot of different ethnic groups within Senegal itself. But because the country is a, it's one of the most economically and politically stable places in the region. So it's this, it tends to be like the hub and the HQ for a lot of private sector companies, but also there's a lot of international development. So all the big NGOs and charities have their headquarters there. And for that reason, there's a lot of foreigners coming and going. Um, 
they come on like one or two year contracts. So there's a lot of turnover of foreigners coming in and out. Most of these foreigners are North American or European and mm. most of them are white. Mm. So it was a very interesting dynamic for me to be in a place where I was quite obviously a foreigner, but I wasn't a white foreigner. Mm-hmm. And I was very keenly aware of my difference. And Senegalese people are very, they're very upfront when talking about difference and skin color and different mm-hmm. physical markers that make you, that mark you out. A Senegalese person wouldn't necessarily hesitate to say that somebody had put on weight or had got right. skinny or, you know, um, had dark skin. sounds very Malaysian to me. <laughs> yeah. Like oh when I God, go I back. I got that shame for the first time. Like I've always <laughs> been a stick. But with lockdown, I haven't exercised. And what did my dad say? He was like, <laughs> look at your tummy. <laughs> <laughs> and then my mum sort of, yeah. Uh, no, carry on. I won't, tell you my, I won't tell you my fat shaming story. Carry on. <laughs> oh my God. I'm going to be so big... fat shamed when I see them. Because... The Senegalese people, I don't know. I, I, and I, this is probably true for a lot of uh, West Africans, but I think that it's not, it's not a bad thing. I think there's a connection mm-hmm. between um, putting on weight and being healthier. You have enough mm-hmm. money to eat. You're wealthy. If you, you know, if you have a, a tummy, it means that you've got enough money to eat a lot. So I, I don't know. It took a, it was a bit of a shock um, to be somewhere where people are so upfront about difference and I was so keenly aware of it. And it was weird because I'm kind of used to um, often being kind of marginalized for not being white, growing up in a dom- predominantly white society. But obviously I was in this place where I had huge amounts of privilege because of my passport, um, you know, Western privilege, basically my mm. passport, my bank account, the fact that, you know, I was wealthy enough to be living in another country. I remember one of my first encounters, I was buying some fruit from a street vendor Mm-hmm. and he asked me which bunch I wanted and I pointed to some bananas and I said oh can I have those ones um over there the ones that are quite yellow and he picked them up and he went yellow like you oh, <laughs> and I was just like um and I didn't really know how to react and I, I could immediately tell that he wasn't being um abrasive in any way he was kind of just making a little joke and then he launched into this um speech about you know he was like you know and 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 I'm really dark and he held up his arm and he Mm. was like comparing our skin colors and then he pointed to another guy and he started talking about how he had lighter skin than him and it was just a Mm. very much like just a an observance um sorry an observation and then we actually ended up having a a quite an interesting conversation because I said yeah but my skin isn't actually yellow and then it was just very surreal to be having a conversation about where these skin color markers come from with this random fruit seller on the street on the side of the road in Dakar in Senegal. Um, but yeah, I became quite aware of my um, different position and not really sure of where I slotted in. And at the beginning, the first couple of years I'd be there, people would ask where I was from and I'd say the UK and they'd be like, are you sure? <laughs> yeah. And um I think initially I was kind of resistant to those conversations and I would be like, yes, with just, you know, stubbornly refusing to talk about anything else. But then I started to lean into it a lot more over the last few years. And um, I think that's something that's really helped me to kind of curate and solidify my own identity and how I feel as a British Vietnamese person. I think it's so funny because there's so many levels to that sort of um, ignorance 
you know, sometimes benign, sometimes just like, like you're saying, a jovial ignorance. I lived in New Zealand for six years and it actually used to really bug me that nobody would ask me where I was from because they were just like, oh, you're Asian. And there was, at the time that I was living there, there was this huge fear of Asians. Like there was a documentary on TV that was the Asian invasion. <laughs> so it's like very clearly racist and very clearly wow. xenophobic. And so the fact that nobody even bothered to ask me was almost worse. Like they just thought of mm. Asia as like one country, mm. you know, and mm. that's, that was almost more, you know, because of the erasure of that than if they just were frankly interested, mm. you know? So it's like, there are so many levels of, and your bar gets set so low, like depending on, I guess, where yeah. you, you are. I think people, I think people who aren't white have a kind of, you have like a radar for when you know something's going to be a microaggression or not. And you okay. kind of get a vibe, you know, when someone's talking to you and it feels okay and it feels comfortable and you feel like the interest is coming from a genuine um, kind place. But there are other times when you talk to someone and the alarm bells start going off and you're like, Oh God, where is this conversation going? Um, and you start to feel really awkward. I think that it's, it's a really difficult thing to spell out on paper, mm. but of course there's a respectful and, uh, there's a way to talk to people about their history and their heritage in a mm. way that's kind of mutually um, respectful, where you give some and then they give some. But I don't necessarily want to have those conversations with everyone I meet on the street, you know, in, in the same way that you might have a friendship with someone. Um, they might not tell you all of their family stuff immediately after meeting you. It's something that you find out about people as you go along. And I think putting people on the spot just because you need to know where they're from is um <laughs> it's, it's kind of like a, a a minor act of aggression I think because it's, it's like you're dictating the way that the conversation wants to go because you need to fulfill um a checkbox in your head you need to know and I, I think it's just interesting to wonder why do people need to know that stuff um straight away why do we yeah. need to know short of collecting ethnicity for data you know data collecting purposes in official capacities why do people need to know immediately where somebody's from in air quotes it, it's reductive isn't it it's just mm -hmm. like it, it you want to be as a human being you want to be seen and be seen and you want to be um you, you want to know that someone's interested in you and seeing like the various aspects of you and listening to you and and if they just focus on one thing like your glasses or your ethnicity and they just make the whole they just talk for two hours about it and then if you uh, and then if you live in a culture where people tend to do that um so every single person does that to you and then every single conversation you have is about like oh i had the best phone in vietnam or something like that <laughs> you've maybe never been or, or 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 have been just on holiday or something like that then it can be very tired that kind of I guess the micro yeah no word of a lie I got introduced uh, no. to somebody in a restaurant recently um and um the first thing that this person said was oh it's so nice to meet you do you know how to make pho <laughs> I was like no hi who are you <laughs> so that was very that was very awkward for me because I felt like the only thing that was interesting about me was my you know, pre-disclosed ethnicity. Um, and that was the only person, the only thing this person cared about knowing about me from the start. And maybe they were just nervous and they wanted to relate because 
I understand that, but it made mm. me feel awkward as hell. Can I swear on this podcast? Yeah. yeah. Okay. It made me feel awkward as shit. And I was just <laughs> like, okay. And then it just made me not want to have a conversation. You know, I just okay. kind of was like, okay, cool, <laughs> I'm going to go over there now. Yeah. I think you're entitled to feel however that question makes you feel, you know, yeah. like, and, and I find that really kind of freeing about a lot of the dialogues around, um, how to navigate race uh which are coming up and it's just like in the past you would have to be like oh well what was their intention um did i say the wrong thing did i overreact and it's like no you didn't overreact or underreact you if you if you feel like saying that then say it it's it's the same as them they felt like asking you so they did it and they didn't worry too much about the impact so i think yeah whatever you want to however however you want to feel about being asked where you're from, that's the valid reaction. Yeah, that's so true. There's no right or way, <clears throat> there's no right or wrong way to mm-hmm. react to your own experiences because mm-hmm. they're yours. Yeah. So yeah, I think that some people like to be prescriptive about it and say, oh, well, you have to take into account what their intentions were. And it's like, I don't, I don't have to do anything. I can, mm-hmm. I'll do yeah. me. Yeah. No, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I don't know yeah I agree it's like what I mean I do I do tend to do that I guess but it's just like it's, at some point it's just like you're kind of boring me do you know what mm. I mean like mm. you're just you're just a boring person <laughs> yeah exactly so exactly like um, and bo- yeah and boredom is probably the most destructive emotion there is I'm not sure if that's true, but yeah. oh, great. this is yeah. this coming from me, the psychiatrist. Yeah, all the wars that yeah. we have. Were toxic boredom. is forget toxic shame, toxic hate, or whatever it is. It's toxic boredom. It's just boredom. Yeah. <laughs> but I actually now I do have to ask because I'm so curious about things like this. But like, what did bring you to Senegal? It's actually not that exciting. Um, <laughs> my you got my... there when you were 18, right? No, no, I was in Scotland before that. So I didn't move to Senegal until I was like 20 something, mid 20s, mid to late 20s. Mm -hmm. Um, um, My partner moved there to learn French um, and ended up, yeah, he ended up getting a job there. We did long distance for a while. So I was kind of going between the UK and Senegal um, every three months and doing like kind of long remote working holidays and then taking a couple of weeks off afterwards. Um, and then he ended up getting a permanent job and my work thankfully is quite flexible. So I was able to relocate and then still keep the same job. So I work for a company that's based in Edinburgh. Um, so outside of COVID times, that means that normally I'm in the UK quite a lot. Um, so I kind of go between Dakar and Edinburgh and I usually stop up in London, but that hasn't been possible for the last couple of years. So I'm actually in London right now for the first time since like 2019, which is really nice. Um, so, so actually you've been in Senegal for quite a while and like, yeah. I'm curious about this because we've talked about it in previous podcasts, I guess, about the Belt and Road Initiative from China and how that's like cultivating maybe like a different, um, an alternative sort of like solidarity between Africa and China. And I was just wondering if that's something you've noticed, being as that you've lived there for quite some time, or is that just something that's just media reports i don't i mean i'm not an ex by, by no means an expert in this subject so i'm not gonna say too much um but i think that 
outside of Africa, there's this narrative about how China is trying to colonize, recolonize Africa, um, which I think is quite a reductive statement. Um, and a bit rich, and, isn't I mean, it? <laughs> yeah, I was going to, like, interestingly, the people who are saying that are, like, Americans <laughs> and Europeans. Yeah. Um, but honestly, um, there's, I, I feel that a lot of, a lot of people in Senegal in particular are kind of, um, they're actually open to the Chinese-Senegalese relationship because um, China is investing a lot of money in Africa in general. Um, and as far as I'm aware, without the same amount of um, kind of neo-colonial strings that come with um, investment in infrastructure from European countries, for example. So Senegal has a really close relationship with um, France being a former colony and France actually has a kind of a monopoly on a lot of the industries in Senegal. Um, and the, the currency in Senegal is, uh, it's pegged to the euro and a lot of the, I think half the reserves are kept at the French treasury in France. And um, French companies get a certain amount of, um, they get a, like a first priority on, on bids for new infrastructure projects and stuff like that. So there's also, British involvement in Senegal because they recently discovered oil there. So obviously BP are all over that shit. Um, and it just doesn't seem, there's so much kind of um, conditional history, historical agreements and, and like the contracts that are made between um, European powers and Senegal. They, I don't know, they just never really feel like they're being completely made on even ground because they're mm. not it's 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 a power dynamic that's so um it's so marred by the colonial history that i feel it's very difficult to have a kind of um you know like an even relationship whereas china and the investment from china and the relationships between a lot of west african governments anyway and china um started on more of a clean slate so i think it's really reductive to say oh china's come china wants to colonize africa um mm. you you see chinese presence in um you know big projects and stuff in in senegal but you don't see the the chinese culture hasn't kind of infiltrated senegalese culture in the same way that its former colonial um former colonizer has and it's just it's just not the same so I, I, I'm a bit kind of wary when people talk about that kind of stuff yeah I've only heard that narrative just and also because I was living in America for quite some time so so that narrative is very prevalent in the U.S. and here I guess but um from people that are that I've spoken to from Africa or from Asia that's not their perception of what's going on so it's always interesting to see such different um, viewpoints. And I guess that kind of, you know, like what you were saying about the colonial mentality towards um, what, negotiations, you know, is just, I think that's the thing where when we talk about identity politics or we talk about racism or accurate representation, that's the thing that really, like to me, that's, you know what I mean? That's the, the reason why accurate representation matters and you know it's like so much more than just um I don't know if someone you know if someone asks you if you uh, make fur that is one thing but then on the other hand you know it's an annoying thing that we have to deal with but on the other hand when you're actually 
um, it allowed th this sort of racism allows you to actually go into a country and just completely exploit an entire country and people and, mm. and like suffer no repercussions for it because they're not even expected to equal, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that um, so often the conversations, like you said, all the people talking about how Africa is colonizing, sorry, how China is colonizing Africa, they, that's a, it's a kind of very xenophobic diatribe that tends to come from the pens of Western writers. It's very, um, it's like racism cloaked in racism. So it's mm. like the, 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 the Europeans are saying, oh, well, we, we need to protect you from this big bad wolf China because, you know, they, um, you know, they do everything in a, um, a very dominating kind of way. Uh, we'll help you, you know, we'll, we'll keep our relationships. Mm. And it's kind of like you're um, continuing the subjugation uh, in, a, in a kind of very neo-colonial way, but also being quite xenophobic towards this idea of China. And I think people just, I think it's exacerbated by the, the rhetoric of people like Donald Trump, you know, China, China, just talking about China as if it's this kind of like one big block mm -hmm. um, that's taking over the world. And I think that what people don't do is read opinion pieces by Africans. There are plenty mm -hmm. of really good African journalists and thinkers and writers and business people who write about this kind of stuff all the time mm. um and usually the people who drop things like oh well china's taking over africa are people who probably have never read anything written by either an african writer or a chinese writer about that relationship um so yeah there's a there's a very good um newsletter that quartz puts out every week um by quartz africa and it's like a roundup of um stuff going on in the business uh, politics and tech world in Africa which is really good and it takes like 20 minutes to read I think that there's just outside of people who have business interests or work interests in Africa I just think that from the UK in particular there really isn't much of an interest um, people don't really follow what's going on they don't mm. you know know very much and I think that like with a lot of things these attitudes stem from ignorance yeah, and also like when you say um, when you say like read things from uh, read African voices or, or listen to African voices, I also get the sense that you're not saying read them in the Guardian or CNN or, or the Telegraph or something like that. It's because a Western newspaper will always uphold uh, you know the examples of of Africans who. Are saying what they want to what they want to hear. So it, I I find it really interesting that you that you were able to drop some resources on on yeah, you know you. <laughs> places we can go. Yeah, awesome. So how tell us a little bit about or a lot <laughs> about how Be Seen started and what. Um, yeah, I want to know because it was just I was looking at your website uh, website Instagram and it was just started well both and it started only last year. Yes, we, so we met, we met about a year ago um, and we launched in on the 16th of September 2020, officially. Oh, you met? You only met a year ago, so you're not like lifelong friends. No, How did you guys meet? Oh, okay, you want to hear the love story? I do! Um, <laughs> okay, so um, it was the middle of lockdown. The world was 
well, it was actually pre-lockdown that we started to notice it, but um, it was around about the time where the argument in the UK was raging about whether or not people should be wearing masks. Mm. And we all noticed that the media in the UK in particular, places like the BBC, The Guardian, were talking about lockdown restrictions and mask um you know, whether or not masks should be made mandatory. And they were talking about them in places like, um, you know, Lancashire or rural places in the UK, for example. And then they would just slap on a photo of some generic, like a generic, like Getty Images picture of um, some East Asian people in Hong Kong or something, oh. which just didn't have any connection. Um, and I noticed it once or twice. And then I started to notice all of these articles and just without fail, there would always be a picture of somebody who was supposed to, I guess, be like generically Chinese, um, but easily could have been any East Asian or even a Southeast Asian person, um, where they had nothing to do with the content of the article. And so I started to complain to the BBC, um, to whatever newspaper it was. And then I saw it happen in The Guardian. And I was like, you should know better than this. So I wrote a really polite but Mm. quite miffed email to Mm. the reader's editor and I got back a really gaslighting reply from the um, reader's editor assistant Um, and so obviously I googled him um, Mm. and he um, he's a white guy and I suddenly just had this moment you want me to drop his name his name is David Whitfield David Whitfield the reader's editor of the Guardian (laughs) <laughs> and so I hate all day. I, I said I, I pointed to um you know the the spike in hate mm-hmm. incidents against um East and Southeast Asian presenting people in the mm. UK and said, you know, don't you think that this kind of prevalent imagery is creating a connotation and reinforcing a stereotype that ultimately could culminate in an act of violence? And he was like, No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and he even said, and then he, he, I think he even went as far as to say, it's not racist because if anything, we're showing that these people oh. are, um, you know, like that they're, they're compliant with, with health and safety regulations. Literally fuck off, David. David Whitfield, <laughs> like, David, fuck you. Out. Fuck everything you stand for, David. Anyway, so I was really upset by this. And I remember um, I, I just felt, you know, being told, trying to putting myself out there and very vulnerably saying you know I'm really offended by this mm-hmm. um I you know I think that this is part of a, a of um you know a racist um narrative around well specifically Chinese people but for the purposes of this mm-hmm. conversation people who are racialized as Chinese mm-hmm. as perpetrators of a virus and then mm-hmm. just have that whole thing boiled down by this white guy who was just like no was so upsetting for me I went I I, I, when I spoke to my husband about it my husband is white but um he's very he's very understanding and he was just like oh we need to get you some Asian friends and I was like yeah (laughs) I just felt very alone Um, yeah and I felt like I didn't have anybody to um relate to and he Mm. not being Asian himself he he recognized that Mm. um so we kind of had a joke about how I was all alone Uh, and then I I was just, I didn't know what to do with myself. So I started angrily posting into the ether that is Instagram, Um, you know, posting stories, sharing things. I even posted the reply that I wrote to David and I I kept tagging um, that. I can't remember. There was like 
a, a British Asian account. I kept tagging in the hope that they might share it. And then it turned out that other people had been doing the same thing, had been complaining and also mm. um, receiving these gaslighting replies. And so somehow I ended up being tagged in the same post or same story as Viv Yao, who is one of the other BCN co-founders. Yeah. And then she was tagging me and stuff. And then she was tagging in these other people. And I was like, who are all these people? But this is great, yay. And then somehow uh, a group got made um, and we agreed to pool our resources. And at the same time, Viv had started this petition um, a change.org petition, which is now up to like 30,000 signatures or over. Um, Viv had started this petition. We found ourselves in a group. We decided to pool our resources. And it was just this kind of perfect moment because someone said, oh, I'm a graphic designer. And then someone said, oh, I've got background in research. And I said, okay, great. I can do copy editing. And it all just kind of came together. And we put out some infographics about, um, you know, exactly what the problem was. Uh, and then linked it to a spike in hate crime and hate incidents and so on. And so we started using this hashtag, we are not a virus. And um, we decided to launch a campaign with, the, that, with Viv's petition at the forefront of our messaging. So we were trying to get as many, uh, and as many signatures as possible. We wanted to attract the attention of government, which we eventually did. Um, and by this point, people were asking us like, what should we call you? Do you does your organization have a name? So they were calling us the We Are Not A Virus Girls for a while. Um, <laughs> and then we eventually realized that we needed something more concrete. And it, it just kind of happened. We just realized that we wanted this to be a long-term thing and not just this short campaign um, during the pandemic period. We realized that there was a huge dearth in the UK of um, groups representing the interests of East and Southeast Asians specifically, because I think in the UK, um, when we use the word Asian, a lot of the time we're talking about South Asians, mm -hmm. um, you know, just due to the, the difference in population sizes, you know, the, the two biggest Asian ethnicities in the UK are Indian and Pakistani. So we, we really felt that we had been kind of left out of a lot of the mainstream discussions around Asian-ness. If you think about mm -hmm. like the BBC Asian network, Mm. it actually should be called the BBC South Asian Network because mm. there's no, uh, there is no representation for West, Central, South or Southeast or East Asians um, in that network. And that's something that we see on our TV, you know, it's, it's um, TV, radio in general. We just realized that there wasn't very much visibility. And so we did a lot of searching. Um, mm. And by this point we were still using Asian. Um, and in the end we decided to, use uh, ESEA as an acronym um, for East and Southeast Asians because um, we felt it was more inclusive and we felt that being specific wherever possible is actually um, far more useful than just saying Asian. So yeah. um, it's difficult, I won't lie. You have to actually learn which countries are in South Asia and <laughs> which countries are in Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. um, but we so we put together resources for all that kind of stuff and we started building educational resources taking notes doing research um and we put together a website the aim of which was um kind of across multiple uh, axes i suppose the first one was to provide educational resources that could be used by teachers by businesses by individuals just on the different dynamics um and the different um, sort of challenges facing East and Southeast Asians in the UK. <clears throat> so we have 
resources about yeah, geography and different festivals and celebrations. We have um, reading lists, um, we have research papers and things like that. And then the other was that we wanted to provide a, a space to kind of showcase and celebrate different um, EC talent. So we would interview people, we would commission uh, pieces by writers, opinion pieces, movie reviews, all that kind of stuff. And so that was the representation part. It really started as a group that was kind of really just, we wanted to put out a positive view of um, ECs in our society in a way that was kind of defined by us and for us, rather than it being somebody else's mold that we had to fit into. Mm-hmm. And then somewhere along the line over the last few months, we've kind of morphed into um Uh, an organization that advocates for the rights um, of East and Southeast Asians and their right to visibility. So we are at heart, we are an anti-racism organization, but our approach is really a very homogenous, no, that's not the word I'm looking for. Holistic. Thank you. <laughs> Our approach is really homogenous. So helpful. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's very, it's very multifaceted. Um, no, our approach is a really holistic one. So we believe that fighting discrimination happens at all mm. levels in society. So mm. while we not only do fight for positive representation, that's not enough. We also need to look at the systemic drivers behind why we don't have that representation. We can't just. Mm-hmm sling someone into a position of power and assume that they're going to do a good job Mm -hmm. so we do advocacy work across different levels you know we do um we do kind of panel and speaking events for companies or educational institutions like universities we um have done advocacy workshops to um uh, inspire i guess groups on how to advocate and how to um, collectively organize we um, we write pieces for other publications sometimes like i said we put out opinion pieces on our own website um, and yeah we have this podcast we have a newsletter we have like so many fingers and oh. so many eyes um, yeah. but i guess one of the big well, two of the big moments for us in the last year have been um, we caught the attention of an MP you might have heard of, whose name is Sarah Owen. Oh, she yeah. is uh, the M- the Labour MP for Luton North, and she's the only she's MP yeah. of mm-hmm. um, EC female EC mm-hmm. ethnic origin. So mm-hmm. there's another Conservative MP called Alan Mack, but mm-hmm. I mean. Alan Mack has said so many times that he doesn't want his ethnicity to have anything to do with his politics. So Mm -hmm. bun Alan, to be honest. (laughs) But Sarah, by by contrast, so she's um, Malaysian Chinese. And she, yay! (laughs) (laughs) She is so engaged in um, the community's interests and Mm -hmm. she really has committed to publicly fighting racism. Um, both on a personal level and also with regards to her work. So she tabled a historic debate about racism towards mm-hmm. East and Southeast Asians in the UK. And it's the first time that anything like this has been discussed in Parliament. And so we all listened into this historic debate and listening to her talk about her experiences with racism in front of MPs, it, you know, it was so emotional really to hear stuff that we could all relate to being talked Mm. about in parliament you could watch it you know live on parliament tv um 
and then you, you know there were other MPs. Don't you? Yeah, it's on the website. Yeah. It's on the BC website. Um, other MPs um, from the Labour and uh, Green Party showed up, mm-hmm. and they were MPs who have you know quite large um, East and Southeast Asian <clears throat> communities and their constituencies. Mm-hmm. And so there was, for example, the um, the MP for Liverpool, whose name I can't remember, Kim something or other. Um, Liverpool, yeah. as you might know, has a massive uh, Chinese population. It's got one of the oldest Chinatowns in Europe mm-hmm. and was recently the subject of uh, a lot of news around the disappearance, the, the secret deportations of Chinese seamen who were in the, 1920s. Um, in the 1920s. They were kind of asked to come and, and, and help rebuild the infrastructure. And then they got deported without their families ever knowing where they were. So there are loads of mixed Liverpudlian white Chinese people growing up who, who, you know, they thought that their fathers abandoned them. Um, so yeah, all these MPs turned up and just shared these really encouraging stories about their communities, but also about the fear that their communities were feeling during this period um, about increased rates of, of abuse and hostility. And that was amazing to hear. The downside was that um, none of the Tory MPs showed up to, to, to represent <sighs> was not altogether surprising um but it was it was interesting. just kind of a, it's kind of it not was kind one. of a good picture of what the situation is like in the UK like we are starting to be able to talk about racism in this kind of way but there is still this I guess disinterest um mm. nevertheless we persisted and we were able to have a meeting or several meetings with uh, not only the cabinet office but also the uh, the Minister for Digital Media, Culture and Sport, Digital Culture, Media and Sport. And we got her to um, announce our issue in the Commons um, to Matt Hancock, RIP, not really. Um, <laughs> and so we asked them, you know, we want you to publicly condemn what's happening, which they did. Mm. Um which was a big deal for us to have this put on the radar. And so I'm not going to say that the issue has magically been fixed, but I think that um, due to the work of groups like Be Seen, but also working alongside other organizations like the Southeast and East Asian Center, like Kanlungan Filipino Consortium, mm. um, you know, we're like, like ESA Scotland, we are getting these issues on the radar of the mm cabinet office of the metropolitan police and different police forces like it it is starting to happen um but there's a a really long way to go and unfortunately a lot of that is tied up with funding and the reality is is that a lot of the groups um particularly those who are doing actual outreach work with communities um and perhaps with people who are harder to reach who maybe don't use social media like older people or um, some migrant populations, for example, those are the organizations that really need money right now. Um, And we don't, you know, we don't see enough funding. So there's kind of a, there's positives and negatives. Like we are seeing these conversations come out into, um, into more public consciousness now, but there's still a really long way to go. So I've talked to quite a few of those organ, um, I don't know if you would call them organizers, community outreach people and they mm. have said that the funding has been so significantly cut under Tory yeah government. so it's like sometimes when we think of oh there's no real difference between the parties anymore but these people really yeah. do feel and the reality is, is that the government <laughs> the government relies on community groups like that particularly for example um 
community centers. There are a lot of Chinese community centers in, in the UK whose funding has been cut hugely in the last few years, but the, it's kind of like a, a vicious cycle because the government actually relies on communicating with those um, centers in order to reach uh, you know, uh, certain demographics, demographics and populations, yeah. but they can't keep going if they don't have the money. Mm -hmm. um, and there are, plenty of, there are plenty of organizations that are really struggling in this kind of vicious cycle. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's frustrating to see because it's like, well, you need us, but if you need us, then you have to support us rather yeah. than just, uh, you know, anyone you need something. That yeah, is... and so that was yeah, that that was our kind of our major um, one of our major achievements was kind of getting this messaging into um, it's amazing in, into the sort of parliamentary consciousness, I guess. And then the second is that we are launching the UK's first ever East and Southeast Asian Heritage Month, yes. uh, which started a conversation yeah. among us about heritage months and how so we have a, a black history month in the uk mm -hmm. we also have a south asian history month which we're currently mm -hmm. in right now that goes from mid-july to mid-august um and there's a bunch of other months and we were talking about it and we thought how do you start a month um yeah and i don't really know the answer to that but what we decided to do was just start one anyway so, what's our month i'm, I'm really curious what's our month september. and why did we pick it we september. september that's the best um, month <laughs> I'd like to say that it was because that was our like preferred month. But mm -hmm. basically, I think when you want to start a month, you have to make sure that you don't shit on other people's months. Yeah. Right. We, wanted, we wanted February because February is, you know, February is like there's usually Lunar New Year and lots of mm -hmm. stuff happening. Um, but February is a month that's clearly so important that I can't remember whose month it is. Oh, God. Anyway, there was a month in February. I know it's either, month. I think it's either US or UK Black History Month is February. Um, like there's right. a November and there's a February and I can't remember which. So we, yeah, we obviously didn't want to take that. So we chose <laughs> September because yeah. there's also kind of like a lot of cultures are celebrating Mid-Autumn Festival. Mm. There's also Malaysia Day, I think. There are a few. Um, you mean Independence Day on the 31st of August? No. Some, what, uh, what's Madeka Day? Don't quote uh, me on it. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna find out. Now, I remember we, we looked it up and we were like, oh, this is actually cool. There's a holiday here. There's a holiday here. No, 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 no. Mm -hmm. So we picked September. Um, also, you know, the weather hopefully should still be okay for kind of things outside. We're, um, we're using our platform as the, um, I guess, the central repository for the information, but we are we've opened it out as um, something that anybody from either individuals or organizations who are East and Southeast Asian or who represent the interests of, of East and Southeast Asians um, can put on an event. And so we have a sign-up sheet with um, lots of information about the kind of events we're, we're hoping for things like, you know, arts, heritage, um, food, discussions, even just kind of like social, just for fun stuff. Um, and once we have all of those registrations, we'll use our website to host the program of events. But the idea is that there will be things happening all over the country. Mm -hmm. um, we, our deadline is actually tomorrow. Um, and we've seen quite a lot of interest. Like, I'm really excited to say that there are some really cool events that people are putting on both online and in person in September. And um, yeah, it's super, super exciting. Um, I guess the cat's out of the bag now, so I can tell you the things that BC is working on. We announced this in our, well, actually, when is this um, show going to go out? 
Probably in a few weeks. Like, um, no, like not. Will it come out before September? Tuesday. Uh, Okay. Yes. So I can say this. Um, So scene is working where we've got um, some of our own projects that we're putting out as part of this program of events. The first one is an online um, multimedia exhibition on how the refugee migration from Vietnam after the end of the war in 1975 has impacted the second generation and subsequently the third generation of British Vietnamese today. And so what that community of British Vietnamese looks like speaking to um, the children of refugees and talking to them about how they raised their children and about how that experience of their parents has kind of shaped who they are and how they identify. Um, so that's that's one thing that we're really excited about. The second is um, BCN's first birthday party, which fingers crossed COVID restrictions permitting is gonna be mm-hmm. an in-person event in London's Chinatown. We will have an afternoon of panel talks around different themes on what it's, uh, you know, what the EC experience is like in the UK. And the third thing is on that same day, this is Saturday, the 18th of September, we are going to have an EC talent night, um, which is going to be an evening of kind of comedy and other performances with drinks afterwards. Um, so we're very, very excited about these things. We have two oh in-person events God. and one online event. Um, and we're right in the thick of organizing right now. So we're kind of just running around like headless chickens trying to get everything done. Um, but yeah, we're really excited about those. But the program of events is looking really cool so far. There are so many different things happening from exhibitions to talks to book clubs and yoga and all this kind of stuff. So we're really just focusing all of our energies into that right now. Ileana, you, you're an actor. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not funny or apparently t- talented. <laughs> you are inten- unintentionally funny. I'm unintentionally, that's true. You need <laughs> someone to fall off with something. I'm very <laughs> so. See me at the end, send me an email. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That sounds so, I mean, I'm so impressed by how much you guys have managed to do in such a short time period. Um, yeah, I don't really know how we do it. <laughs> it's amazing. Was there uh, anything along that um, journey that surprised you? Yeah, all the time. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I write the BC newsletter um, mm. once a month, which is, it tends to be, it's like a mix of, um, you know, we give people an idea of what we've been up to. So we say everything that we've been doing, but I also put out, we, we have recommendations for like podcasts, uh, music, films, books, and so on. And then we also have, um, you know, we kind of, give updates on things that are happening in the community um, if there are opportunities like research opportunities or mentoring opportunities things like that um, but every time I do that I'm always so amazed because I have to go through and list all of the things that we've been up to and I'm like oh wow yeah I forgot that we did this event or we did this talk or whatever um, and I'm just so overwhelmed sometimes by how much we have managed to get through and sometimes I think like what did I do before when, you know, because we all have full-time jobs and we all do this as volunteers. So none of us is getting paid. We're trying to squeeze this in, in evenings after work, Saturday mornings, just whenever. Um, so many of my days off are dedicated to be seen work at the moment. Yeah. And I'm like, think- what did I do before I did this? Do you think <laughs> there will come a point time? where this will be your full-time job? Like, can you foresee that? 
it would be the dream really to have be seen as like mm. a, you know we've got really big hopes for be seen um going forward uh we sometimes joke about how we're going to have be seen hq which is going to be <laughs> uh carly one of our co-founders is currently designing it on the sims um but we we have this joke about how it's going to be this amazing uh, cultural space for people to meet and where we can have workshops and we'll have a podcast recording room and we'll also have a crash and perhaps even like a school attached to it so we can have be seen school for the younger generation and you know we joke about it but um I would love to see the day eventually where this becomes um you know a, a, a full-time thing with a, a physical location who knows but I mean, you know I we're a long we're a long way off I, I want that so that. badly. Yeah. It's my dream. But also, like, you know how when we grew up and we had Chinese class, like, way, me and way, we had Chinese yeah. classes and those, like, community. I mean, so mm. it just, it makes sense to update it for the, our new current, you know, time and that we would have an EC one or VC one. Yeah. That just, like, makes so much sense to me. It would be so nice if we just had like a, I don't know, I guess, yeah, like the equivalent of um, like a youth center or like, you know, people used yeah. to go to like Chinese school or Vietnamese school mm. or whatever. Yeah. Just to have that, but just like, as I don't know, just as a place for people to hang out and connect, but also where there are like community events being organized in a space that we could, you know, use. Again, this is all just, it's a, it's a pipe dream for the future, but one day, who knows? We, we know that we need a space like this. We know that, um, you know, we, we need more. Um, there are organizations who have been working tirelessly for years, um, but we just, we, we need more of them. We need more spaces. We need more voices. Uh, that's really interesting. I was listening to the BCN podcast, actually, and the one with Howard Wong on it, the, mm -hmm. the founder of Little Moons, who's like, one of my friends actually and um <laughs> name drop <laughs> yeah um well I just wanted to I also just wanted to show you that I've done my research and I listen um but yeah well done 10 points <laughs> yeah yeah um and he was saying like the thing about like the Asian community or the Chinese community and I don't want to conflate the two but um the thing about I'll just speak for the Chinese community then is that because um, we're not necessarily all religious or we don't necessarily have a religion that unites us we don't all meet on Sunday you know or, or something <laughs> like that where with the Asian community or, or, or some black communities they do they there are kind of things centered around religion and gathering and I'm not saying that I want to be religious just for the community aspect but yeah it would be nice to um, um, to gather around something and Chinese school was definitely I mean I think at the time I was a bit indifferent about it not complete I, I did enjoy it to an extent like I know a lot of people kind of say that they were um they were different that they hated Chinese school or something like that mm. and I didn't I, I I quite liked it um but um but it just it revolves around language there is the community aspect where you have there that is. Chinese New Year show they like, were like dancing <laughs> yeah and, dancing and, stuff. and actually yeah. one of my earliest memories is totally random but is where you were dressed in like one of those Chinese silk costume things oh my and god and after that we went to a supermarket or something and you got lost and this is just so hilarious to me um you were really shy because you were really young the announcer was like we have found a Japanese boy. <laughs> like, oh like, my God. God. What like, fucking erasure? Was I, I angry? Was I like, you were Japanese. You were mute. And that we were like, he speaks perfect English. Why didn't you just tell yeah, me your yeah, name yeah. and who you are? No, do you know what? I think that is a microaggression, <laughs> but it's also another microaggression because I think you're mixing me up with my brother. 
Lost in supermarkets and, and, and like. Oh, and that's so quiet. funny. Yeah. Nice. So, have you two? You two have known each other since trainee school. No, I've known since him since that. he was a baby. We were babies, yeah. Oh, I'm a year. I'm a year older or something. So, yeah, I've literally mm -hmm. known him since he was a baby. Wow. So we have an episode about Chinese school that you should listen to. People, oh people relive their experiences of Chinese school, and we got some of our listeners to write in with their commentary as well. I don't um, actually think I've learned anything from Chinese. <laughs> so Chinese one of the things other? that I wanted to, um, I guess, coming back to this idea about having needing spaces for people mm -hmm. to, um, to 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 meet and to explore and network that are adapted uh, and you know updated. I think that that it's so needed because our previous generations, um, particularly for those who grew up with parents who maybe worked in the restaurant industry or in the takeaways um, or for a number of other reasons were very spread out. So in the case of the, the rise of the takeaway, for example, as um, you know, kind of means of survival, obviously the way that you do that is to go where there isn't any competition, which is why you have, yeah. you know, even in the, like the most tiny village in like the North of Scotland, you'll have a, a Chinese takeaway. Um, similarly, when, the Vietnamese, uh, first Vietnamese refugees arrived in the UK, the, um, the British government had a deliberate dispersal policy, wow. which was um, aimed at integration, better integration. So they would send these Vietnamese refugees to, to just different places all over the country. And the different um, people that we've spoken to from these communities, they, you know, they've been in like Aberdeen or Leeds or wherever, or, or outside of these places. And the idea was for integration, but actually the result was that a lot of the time these communities were, well, these families were extremely isolated and they didn't have the support networks that they needed. And so for various reasons, we have different, um, different ethnic groups, different groups of families spread out around the UK in a way that's very different to the US, for example, where uh, we see lots of um, Asian American communities congregated in, in, in concentrations in cities um, like in the Bay Area or New York, for example. And so we're much more spread out in the UK, but with the way that the world is changing, you know, the children, of, of, of these economic migrants or refugees or whoever they are, are now moving around the country. You know, families have moved to cities uh, in search of community. And now the children of those families have been moving around. You know, they, they don't necessarily have jobs in the same industries as their parents. Um, you know, they're kind of fulfilling the whole point of why their parents migrated in the first place was to have a, a kind of more opportunities for their children. And so, now what we're seeing is that a lot of the organizers in um, this kind of recent online movement towards better visibility for EC people are the second generation, those who have grown up in the UK um, and they want to consolidate their sense of identity. We're no longer, um, thanks to the fact that people have moved around and people are more connected, but also in part thanks to the dawn of social media and online organizing and the pandemic which allowed everyone to be a lot more connected digitally thanks to those two things we now have a dynamic that's much more connected than it ever was and we need spaces to match that dynamic so mm. 
people are connecting virtually and digitally all the time. And what I think is gonna be the case in, over the next few years is that we need to have kind of consolidated centers of interest, um, physical places where these, um, this online organizing can be taken into real life, into, into you know, yeah. real life interactions. I mean, it's so yeah, so we need to update our, we need to update our spaces. Yeah, and also yeah. I just like, just even talking about this right now, it's just like striking me that one of the things about going to the Chinese school or whatever was, yes, we were learning about our heritage, but also it was the place where someone would tell me, oh, you're not Chinese enough, you know? And it's like, now we're in a different generation where we are allowed to integrate, like you're saying, all our different parts of our identity mm -hmm. and having a space and a community for that mm -hmm. would just be so amazing and needed. And I mean, I definitely think it's going to happen. You just... It will happen. It will happen. If there are any listeners who happen <laughs> to be, you know, millionaires or yeah. have, you know, spare, yeah. spare 100 grand just lying about. Um, <laughs> yeah, or have the, ear, have, have the ear of a millionaire, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Be seen. We'll have yes. all the links you know underneath this video. Yeah. Be seen HQ. <laughs> 10 years time I'm manifesting it yes yes I, really I mean gonna we're gonna look back at this and it's gonna like just yeah. be so emotional because we'll be at like you know the top of like the tallest tower in London like <laughs> it's so easy to like extract it's so easy to snowball though because we go like okay well BC is a BC and HQ it's gonna need somewhere to eat like we'll have to have like yeah. a canteen yeah, yeah. Or something. and then I'll be yes. like oh yeah but we're gonna need like Coffee you know shop. a street food store and then we'll need a cafe but oh we might as well just get a food court so then there's a garden all different space. yeah and then we can have like you know we can have space where different businesses uh you know Ooh. caterers can can come and they could have their food trucks and you could get like, oh my like, god wait. and then so you have excited. like a massive like bat signal type spotlight that shines up into the cloud and like makes yeah. everybody assemble Except like yes of a bat, it's like food. A dumpling. we're having a, a gathering dumpling. yeah a dumpling yeah, yeah, yeah oh my god i can't wait also i love dumplings i want this i want doesn't I, I i'm interested like um because you talk a lot about like communities and um refugees and things like that and there's always these kind of uh there's different aspects to how we think of the Asian community or communities. And, and there's there's the stereotype of that kind of Asian professional working in tech or finance, the kind of affluent ones. And then you've also got, uh, you've also got people who have just come over and there is like a, a very large Asian working class. Um, what is the demographic kind of breakdown of, of your membership or, or what, what kind of people have you got and what kind of people do you want to reach out to more? So I'd say that, I mean, like I, I kind of uh, talked about this earlier, a lot of our um, community and reach is made up of um, the second generation. So the mm -hmm. children of, uh, of people whose parents um, moved to the UK for whatever reason, um, whether it was economic migration or, you know, they had a job that they had to come over for or if they were refugees or whatever it was. Um, so I think that we have a, a huge amount of second gen um, British born or, I mean, I'm not British born, but um, yeah, we're, we're, we're quite inclusive in the way that we talk about what it means to be British. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that we're very, very keen not to establish any kind of gatekeeping mentality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um because people's relationship between what it means to be british might be very very different 
Um, so I'd say we have a lot of second gen people um, and, and there are, you know, as you said, there is a really big um, working class and we have a lot of the people in our community are the children of, of those um, of those people. Um, I'd, I'd say it's a mix. There's probably also quite a lot of, um, you know, middle class or more privileged um, people in our community think predominantly I mean they're all people who have found us via social media so um, I think that that's a certain demographic that we don't tend to reach as much is uh, older generations who don't use Instagram for example because Instagram was kind of where we started with a lot of our organizing um, but we've been really fortunate to partner with some organizations who are working with those communities so we recently did a workshop with China Exchange um, who work they're based in London's Chinatown. And we recently did a workshop, an advocacy workshop. And I'd say the majority of the people in that workshop were like over 50, mm -hmm. which was really great for us because it's quite difficult for us to reach those communities. Typically we've only been able to do that when we've been um, in kind of big media publications like magazines or newspapers or on the radio. Mm because I think it's yeah, a generational thing. A lot of people prefer to listen to the radio than be scrolling through social media. So that, that's a demographic that we really would like to hit more of. Um, we put a lot of focus on our newsletter for that reason, because some people you know, they prefer to receive an email with updates rather than you know, scrolling through and, and looking for updates. Um, but I think one thing that I would like to say about you know, different demographics is that I think not just for B-Scene, but Overall, I do think that there is a tendency sometimes to um, overlook slightly less visible groups who should still really be part of our organizing. For example, there are um, a lot of migrant populations mm -hmm. in the UK who are far more vulnerable and marginalized because they don't have the same kind of um, passport or status privilege that mm -hmm. a lot of the rest of us do. And I think that we need to be hyper-conscious of the different intersections that mean that some people's experience is very different to others. And when we organize and when we, um, you know, when we want to fight for the rights of certain groups, we need mm -hmm. to make sure that we actually are speaking for the rights of all groups, not just yep. the ones who have similar experiences to our own. Um, I think it can be quite easy to get into an echo chamber when you speak to people who have a similar economic background, a similar level of education, a similar kind of experience to you, um, and that's why the, the, the N part of our name of BCN, which stands for network is so important to us because oh. we will never claim to stand, you know, to be the kind of authority on anything, you know, mm -hmm. part of what makes our organization and what we do so cool is that we work alongside other groups. Um, and we're not afraid to say, we're not the best people for this there's another there's another organization who does a far better job than we ever could um we're not afraid to recognize our limitations and we have been so fortunate to collaborate with other um organizations who are doing outreach work with migrants for example um with you know former refugees or with uh, victims of trafficking for example those mm. kind of stories that we actually don't hear as much of but really should be on everybody's radar um it's amazing to meet with other people who have similar experiences, similar backgrounds, similar families and connect. Um, we can celebrate those moments, but we also at the same time have to be really conscious of, um, you know, of, of other narratives and other stories. So I think there's kind of 
there's a big picture that we all need to be very aware of. Oh, I love that network. I've not honestly like because everything that I've done was always in like a society or a group or something like that. And I, it's just so obvious now you say it just network and, and have connections and that's so important and you'll just you'll just cancel all that wasted labor on overlap and like and you'll play to people's strengths you know but how do you deal yeah. with polarizing topics like politics can be so polarizing and mm. like you know even Chinese community there's some very very you know Hong Kong China Taiwan there's some very polarizing where people don't even want to hear you know so how do you deal with that sort of thing? So, I mean, when we've done workshops in the past, um, something that we have is a safe space policy. Mm. So we have a policy um, of mutual respect, which tries to get people to think about the different experiences and identities, whether that's their gender, sexuality, ethnic uh, identity, their class, where, what, you know, their education level, whatever it is, and fully cognizant of the fact that yes, there are always gonna be people who disagree with each other. And sometimes that centers around kind of groups, certain groups that are often pitted against each other. Mm -hmm. um, but we, we try to establish a space where you come to the space knowing and recognizing that you have to make space for other people. Um, and so we, we kind of try to set the tone quite early on. Um, we've never been an organization that's, you know, set out to make it, we've never made it our mission to unite people who are, you know, on, on different ends of a political spectrum. That's not really um, what we're here to do. We're here to make a space where people feel welcome. Um, so while we, you know, we have, for example, we have, um, commissioned writers who have strong particular political beliefs that they've put out on uh, their own pieces that are written on our website. Mm. Um, it's not our place to disagree or not disagree or tell them um, what they should and shouldn't be writing. But what we do have a responsibility to do is to provide a space for nuance and to make mm. sure that people talk about their experiences in a respectful way. Um, I think that's really all you can do. I think that you get into very dangerous water when you're trying to, um, to, to come out and we're not trying to fix people's beef with each other. Mm -hmm. We're just trying to provide a space where people can talk about their experiences. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It feels like it's you've tricky. done it very gracefully though, I have to mm -hmm. admit. Cause, mm -hmm. Cause yeah, you don't actually, what's interesting about it is that you haven't shied away from controversial topics because some of your writers have controversial controversial ideas or opinions but yet it's not done in a way that seems polarizing yeah so it's like very yeah it's a very tricky I think negotiation when we have come up against kind of controversial things I mean and I'm not saying that we're perfect you know we've, we've definitely we may have um provided space for things that people have, might have taken offense against I think when 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 dealing with controversial topics we try to ask why these different um, polarizing opinions exist. Um, what are the cultural, uh, political backgrounds towards, towards why these, perhaps these two people are having a disagreement or these two sides are having a disagreement. Um, um, yeah, like I think one thing that we're also quite conscious of is just being very honest about what we know and what we don't know. Um, and I think that the humility 
people find that quite comforting. Um, I think if you set the tone by creating a space where you're like, well, I know everything about this and it's got to be this way, obviously people mm. are going to kick back at that. And mm. so I think when you have a space where you're quite humble about um, your limitations and also about not speaking to the experiences of others, um, mm. we're really big on validation and that everyone's experience is valid. So if they mm. want to talk about how they feel about something mm. they've experienced, it's nobody else's place to tell them that they don't feel that way. Because mm -hmm. that's kind of how BCN started in the first place was we were all being told that what we were feeling wasn't valid by the same guy, right? David. So, David. David. Thank you, David, for teaching us all a, a lesson. <laughs> so David, your ignorance has inadvertently sparked Oh, wow. The scene headquarters Amazing. at the top of the Shard in London Bridge yeah. with the bat signal in the shape of a wonton. Um, so, yeah. Thank you, David. Yeah. Thank you. I feel, now I feel terrible because we should wrap up and I don't want my last yeah. word to be thank you, David. Um, but no, thank you, Maya. I, yeah, we do have to wrap up. What's the, yeah. what, what are the, can we, yeah. Yeah. What are your last parting words of wisdom? Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, so now I have uh, now I have a question for you mm. both. Okay. Uh, team rice or team noodle? Oh, no, I can't do that. No. Yes, you can. Rice, rice, <laughs> rice. Oh, well, there was some barely any hesitation there. Uh, I'm Cantonese, I'm part Cantonese, so it's got to oh be rice. Oh, my gosh. I really can't choose things like that. First of all, I'm trying to lose weight forever, so... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even eating either. So, and, uh, so you choose neither. That's so not... I have to choose neither. <laughs> that fun. I have like these kelp noodles that taste like tanghun. So no. But really, I love rice so yeah. much. I mean, Gross. I love them both. I can never choose. Uh, Sophie's choice. Uh, it's a really here. polarizing debate, and um, in the no. in BC, so Why BC is just there are there are six of us, and we're split equally. So we really? have three team rice and three team noodle. Yeah. What are you? Yeah, team Noodle. Uh, team Noodle for sure. No, I could, honestly, I would be upset if I could never have noodles again, but. Imagine I, if you never had lunch. I would die if I couldn't have rice again, so it's team rice. <laughs> it's a life or death. Yeah, yeah. I would literally just, I would literally just off myself, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, this is not, no. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. Wait, I can't take that, that out. That's kind of <laughs> <laughs> that was a bit dark. That was no. We're keeping that in. We're gonna. No. We're gonna have that as a teaser ah. to this episode. <laughs> Thank you so much. Really appreciate Thank you your for time. inviting me. It's uh, been so lovely. I love your work. It's yes. amazing. Yes, I'm coming. Thank you. And we're gonna uh, well, hang out in the you yeah, hope, well, hopefully we'll see <laughs> both of you um, either virtually or in person for some of our mm -hmm. events in September. I hope yes. so, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. The Ignoramus's Guide to Surviving Humanity is available as a podcast on Spotify and Amazon Music. You can also like and subscribe to our videos on YouTube. And if you want to help us grow, then you can become a patron on Patreon. And that's it, right? I think that's, that's it. it. Yeah. <laughs>